We're jumping into Psalm 32. We've been taking a break from our study of Romans, giving Chris a chance to take some time with his family over the summer. Uh, so we've walked through four, uh, we're going to walk through four Psalms. This is the last one, Psalm 32. In preparation for this, I've been praying through the Psalms ever since I was asked to, to pick one and preach. Um, and using the Psalter day after day, I've read two or three in the morning and wrote down a short paragraph about each one. Um, just kind of immerse myself in the book. Um, the Psalms and the Psalter are really helpful for getting God's perspective, returning him to the throne of our lives where normally we put ourselves at the center, we look to ourselves for strength and wisdom. The Psalms have God in mind and put him in front of our face in a very real way and uh, in a very useful way. So when we walk through the Psalm together, it's going to be a little different than walking through uh, Romans, which is very methodical and a very orderly argument, uh, whereas the Psalms are more personal prayers. Um, so that's, that's sort of what we're going to be doing today, but we're also going to stay true to the text. We're also going to keep the gospel central, um, but learn how to use this Psalm for ourselves. Um, so let's dive in. This is Psalm 32. It says in the top of some of your translations that this is a maskil of David. Um, it is a prayer written down by David for corporate worship, and as Jesse taught us last week, a maskil is basically for our edification, for our information, and for making us wise. The Psalms are all, broadly speaking, prayers. Half of the Psalms were written by King David. He's the anointed king of Israel. He's a progenitor of Jesus. He is a shadow of the thing to come. The rest are written by his choir masters. Uh, who are basically priests who are charged with creating the liturgy for God's people in worship. And also two of them were written by Solomon, who was known as the wisest man in the world and was king after David. So really all of them are for the good of God's people and for making us wise, but this one in particular. So that's how we're going to look at it this morning. So if you're new to Christianity, if you're a new Christian or you're just checking it out today, you've come on a great day to get some one-on-one basic stuff. If you've been a Christian for a long time, feel pretty confident this is a great day to renew the fundamentals as we dive in. The Psalms, as we just mentioned, are prayers. We pray a lot, mostly poorly. Um, I pray when my heart gurgles over with worry or emotion or desire. We pray for an A on the test, for God to make something bad just go away. We pray selfishly and poorly a lot. But God knows that. He's expecting that. So he gives us the Psalter as a template for prayer, just like the Lord's Prayer um, that we used just a moment ago. Jesus, um, who underwent the full range of human emotion and experience, God with us, God in the flesh, prayed the Psalms, and we can pray the Psalms too if they're good enough for him, right? They keep us from being selfish. They keep us from missing the purpose of prayer, which is to commune with God, to be more like him, um, and to connect to him. Listen, someone says it better. It's a theologian. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he was writing and putting out most of his work under persecution uh, from Nazi Germany, but he says this about the Psalms. There's, there's a quote on the screen. How is it possible that a human being in Jesus Christ can pray the Psalter together? It is the incarnate Son of God who has borne all human weakness in his own flesh and who stands in our place and prays for us He has known the torment of pain and guilt and death more deeply than we have. Therefore, it is the prayer of the human nature assumed by Christ that comes before God. Since the Son of God knows us better than we know ourselves, 
and was truly human for our sake, it can become our prayer only because it was his prayer. So with godliness is our goal, and with Christ as our guide, let's hear Psalm 32. Turn in your Bibles and stand uh, in honor of reading God's word. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse and mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So listen to the conclusion of this psalm one more time. This is verse 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, all you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy. That's the conclusion of this psalm. God is pointing the way to be joyful in him in spite of the sorrows and evil that are in our world. He's doing it through King David's familiarity with sorrow uh, and, by proxy, Jesus' familiarity with sorrow. So we join uh, with those guys when we read this psalm um, and walk through it with them. This psalm is about how to deal with the darkness of this world and not come out cynical and bitter, but full of hope and joy. So that's where we're going. David is going to walk us through in three steps. First, he's going to engage pain, the suffering and evil of the world. Then he's going to engage penance or repentance, that's confessing, turning away from that evil. And finally, he'll show us how to put it into practice. Uh, So we can begin with the, the first two verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is the one. If you may remember from Dave's sermon on Psalm 1, we gave sort of a working definition to the word blessed. We talked about how it's not live long and prosper. It's not looking for acres of diamonds. It's not pie in the sky. When you die, blessedness is not principally about God giving us special luxuries or special presents. Uh, Blessedness is about our relationship to God. All right, blessedness is being square with God. And in that, no matter what your circumstances are, you will experience the hope and love and joy that this psalm is talking about. 
blessedness in good times, when things are going your way, and in bad. David, who wrote this psalm, uh, was hunted down like an animal by his enemies. Jesus um, could pray the psalms on his way to the cross. They were experiencing blessedness. They were experiencing a right relationship with God that did not have to do uh, with their circumstances. So who's blessed? How do, we, how do we enjoy that? How do we get there? It says in the psalm, the one who is forgiven, the one whose sin is covered, or in verse 2, the one in whose spirit is no deceit, and God does not count his iniquity against him or her. So we can't be right with God if we have these two things, transgressions or iniquity. So what are those things? So these are some working definitions. Transgressions uh, will define as acts of evil or omission of good. The sins, basically, is what we're talking about. And iniquity is our state of inadequacy because of those sins. So that, I, I know that that is not the full semantic range of those words, but I did look it up in the OED, and this is one of the ways that you can define it. So for our, for our purposes, transgressions are the things you do. Iniquity is the standing that you have because of it. It has a sense of being unequal, like two boards that are not flush and together. Um, transgressions particularly um, are sometimes difficult to put your finger on. You know, if you eat half of a hot dog um, and you're full, it's a sin to, you know, be gluttonous and overindulge. It's also a sin to waste food. You know, you don't know what to do in some of these cases. Um, so uh, to give us some help, it's, sometimes it's easier to think of what kind of action it is, not necessarily uh, the legal ramifications. The Catholics have handed us down a great set of seven deadly vices and seven contrary virtues that help you balance out what to do in a given situation. So these would be um, ways you can think about, well, is this a transgression or is this okay? So let me, let me read down the list of the, the seven virtues and the the sin that they counter. You can look these up or have Siri look them up for you later. (laughs) First one, humility. Humility is the virtue that counters pride. Pride leads to other sins. True humility uh, clears a path of holiness for us. Pride is a sin based on undue and inappropriate appreciation of one's own self-worth. It's thinking too much of yourself. So humility encourages modest behavior, selflessness, and giving respect. Liberality or generosity is a virtue that counters greed. Generosity, willingness to give freely without request uh, or hoping for things in return. Chastity is the counter virtue to the sin of lust. Chastity embraces moral wholesomeness and purity both in thought and action. It treats God's gift of sexuality with due reverence and respect. Meekness or patience is a virtue that counters the sin of unjust anger. Meekness is a response. When somebody does something to you, you can burst out in anger or you can respond with meekness and patience. Temperance is the virtue or abstinence that counters gluttony. Uh, To be gluttonous is to overindulge. On the opposite hand, the virtue of temperance is centered on self-control and moderation. Kindness or brotherly love, love for one's neighbor, is the virtue that counters the sin of envy or jealousy. Um, Envy and jealousy is made manifest in a person's sorrow and distress over good things happening to another person. (laughs) That's jealousy. Conversely, kindness and brotherly love are unprejudiced, compassionate, 
and charitable concern for the needs of others that you can meet. Diligence or persistence is a virtue that acts as the counter to the sin of sloth. Sloth is an animal, so if you want to think of, it's the same word, but if you want to give it a more antiquated uh, sloth, then that might help you differentiate. Sloth is um, a sin that refers to laziness uh, in matters of faith, whereas diligence uh, in matters of spiritual faith combats laziness. It's a virtue that is manifest in zealous attitudes toward living and sharing the Christian life. So those are the seven virtues with their seven deadly sins as counterpart. Um, those sort of, uh, as an umbrella, encapsulate all of your, your possible transgressions. So you can use that as a template. Christians often use the fruit of the Spirit, right? The proof of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. You can look those, or Siri can look those up for you too. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay? The first two verses of the psalm say, you can be blessed and you can be square with God if you have no transgressions and God does not count iniquity against you. Okay? So that basically means that you've never indulged in any of the sins that we talked about and you only ever perfectly do the virtues that we talked about. Which is a very high standard. It's a very high standard to be blessed and to be square with God. Um, most of us are going to find ourselves, I think everybody in here is going to find themselves in a state of iniquity before God. Um, in God's eyes, according to this psalm, we need to be perfectly virtuous and without transgression, or else we have this iniquity against us. Again, with that image of two boards that aren't flush, we just don't, we just don't quite measure up. Or like at trivia night, if you miss a question, there's no bonus round. You can't get those points back. The other team is just going to get those points, and you're just behind. There's no, there's, no way to, there's no way to do it at trivia night and get ahead. Getting the virtues wrong, however, is not trivial. Wordplay. And it separates us from God and each other. The tension of trying to get that right, the strain of trying to be square with God and get blessedness, uh, but not being able to do anything about it, um, causes us and it caused David pain. And that's the, that's the first point he's going to bring us through in verses 3 and 4. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So inwardly, David feels the tension and pain of knowing what he needs to be, knowing that he needs a relationship with God, knowing that he's breaking his friendships and relationships with other people because of his evil. Inwardly, he feels the guilt and the shame and the condemnation of the evil of this world. And in verse 4, relationally to God, he feels the strain and the guilt of knowing that his sin is known and found out by people and by God, and that is crushing to him. He's experiencing the sorrows of iniquity, the sorrows of the wicked that he mentions in verse 10. Uh, just to put some skin on this, when Natalie and I were on our honeymoon, we were gifted uh, a week at a cabin uh, by a guy who wanted to give it to us as a wedding present. So we stayed up there for free. It was really fun. We traveled on a red-eye flight through the night, got into this place, and we were the first people to use it that summer. So we had to turn on all the breakers and kind of open up the house. So I do this. I turn on all the breakers at once. Um, simultaneously, I turned on the water pump 
and the hot water heater, which is what you're supposed to do, it is not exactly in that order, though. You need to turn on the water pump first so that the water heater will fill with water. This did not happen, so the elements turned on like a toaster, and the thing caught on fire and blew all the fuses. So immediately that happened. Um, Natalie and I were obviously pretty upset about that. Uh, not, not super great uh, first, first couple moments at the cabin. And more scary still was just sitting there with my phone in my hand, knowing that I have to call this guy and let him know, like, oh, yeah, thanks for your vacation now. It's what we can erect it. So um, that is, uh, that's transgressions yielding iniquity, right? That's me doing something dumb, and I have to own it, and I know that I have to own it. There's no way he's not going to know, for one thing. This has to be found out, and I have to tell him. That's, that's what David is, is going through right here. He keeps silent, and his bones are wasting away. God's hand is heavy upon him and his strength is dried up, right? There's nothing that he can do to make this better. There's nothing I could do to make that situation okay again because I am not a plumber. Um, this, this feeling of pain and inner turmoil and relational pain is very human. Surely that's a familiar feeling to all of us. Why is that? Why is that? The late Christopher Hitchens, an anti-theist, popular figure, critic, critic of the church and theism, has a quote that goes something like this. God demands perfection of us, but then he creates us imperfect. God creates us flawed, but then he orders us to be perfect. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe someone's told you that. Maybe someone's made you feel that way or, or framed God that way to you, but that is not the message of the Bible. That is a half-truth. We don't have to stay in that tension and pain. Look at what God says about humans in Genesis 3.22. He's just finished making creation, making humans. They have a perfect relationship with God. They have a face-to-face relationship with God. And the Bible says he has made humans in his image in the garden. And they're enjoying that. But then they eat from the forbidden tree of knowledge and good and evil. And now... Uh, Listen to how God describes people, no longer as image bearers. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God says, "These, These creatures were my image bearers. They have overreached. And now we, now we understand good and evil. Now we have that tension. And this is not something we were built to deal with. You know, we're not, we're not plumbers. We don't know how to make that better. So truly, God creates us perfect. Humans have overreached. And now we are stuck in a mess that we do not have the power to clean up. God made us uh, in his image. And now we are bearing the weight of being like him and having the responsibilities of God without the power to handle it well. That's why we find ourselves uh, in the pain of knowing good and evil but not really being able to do anything about it. Um, That's why evil exposes us to evil. That's why when we do evil things, it exposes us to more hurt and to more evil makes us lash out, makes people lash out against us. We're just unprotected against the weight of good and evil. So when we have done something wrong, when you're in a situation like I was, when you're in a situation like David is here, we are exposed without protection to inadequacy, to weakness, to shame, our condemnation, and our guilt. Truly the sorrows of the wicked. We're trapped in the sorrows of the wicked. 
Note also that God blocks the way to the tree of life here. That would be, to eat of that would be to live forever. To live forever in, in this way would be hell. So God protects um, Adam and Eve from that. He protects us from having to live forever in this way. So how does he do that? How do we get out of this mess? What do we do now? David shows us in verse 5. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. So wincing and with gritted teeth and in fear and in shame, we confess these things, knowing, you know, with, with the phone calling this guy, it's my fault, you know, I've got to own up to this mistake, and, uh, and I feel all this guilt. So David does this. And the God of justice who commands the heavens, the God who brought the Israelites out of slavery in the strength of the ten plagues, he's the defender of the people that we have harmed, the one for whom all vengeance and wrath and judgment against evil is reserved, the God who searches all hearts, who is sovereign over all things, moves in high heaven in reply to our sin. And what does it say? He forgives the iniquity of our sin. He forgives the iniquity of our sin. Some of your Bibles have a little word in italics there, right? If that says Selah, that's generally known to be a signal to stop. And just think and let that, let that sink in when you're reading the Psalms. Just take a break. All that buildup, all that pain, all that tension. We don't know what to do about the evil mess that we've got ourselves in. God knows what to do. He forgives the iniquity of our sin. how does he do that? That brings us to the next part that David is, is walking us through. This is penance. This is repentance. How can a just God do this? How can our unequalness, how can our iniquity be corrected? How is repentance possible? How is it possible to just say, oh, I did it, and God say, I forgive you? How is this available to us? The answer is Jesus Christ. He is God incarnate. He is both God and man, as we discussed earlier. His perfect life, um, bearing the image of God perfectly on earth, mixed with his perfect handling of good and evil. He has no transgression, so he has no iniquity. He is man. He is in the image of God. He is God, knowing good and evil, and powerful to do something about it. Um, He is blessed. He has a state of blessedness with God that we're yearning for, um, and he never broke it, right? He's never got any iniquity on him. So he he takes on all of our iniquity as well in his death on the cross. He takes the punishment that we deserve, the separation we deserve. He takes on the pain and the frustration and the toil that we deal with in his death on the cross and satisfies the justice of God in that way. And when he did that, um, he also also does two things that allow us to approach God. The first thing is um, he gives us justification. The second thing is that he makes space for sanctification. So those are two academic words that we can break down. Justification, which has been the main theme of Romans so far as we've walked through uh, with Chris, uh, is essentially that God, uh, like in a court, deems you not guilty. So you are justified once and for all, the sins and the transgressions and the iniquity that was on you is no more when you are justified 
Jesus gives you his righteousness so God sees you as perfect and whole and as complete as Jesus. Or this would be like if, if you could go back in time and you met like a baby Pablo Picasso and he was like making his first little scribblings, you'd be like, oh, that's really cool. Keep doing that, man. You wouldn't say like, oh, you're an idiot. You'll never be an artist because you know who he will be, right? And God knows who you will be. God knows who you are. Your identity is safe. Uh, you are justified. Sanctification is where God makes space for you to grow into that. He makes space for you to be more and more virtuous over time. So Christians know that we will fall, we will need a psalm like this to repent and keep turning away from our evil and keep turning toward God. Ultimately, we will be sanctified and glorified and it will be done when Christ returns um, and makes all things new. Right? So on this side of heaven... We don't arrive. So justification does not mean that you're like Spider-Man and you get saved and you get bit by a radioactive spider and boom, you can walk on walls, you can do anything, you've arrived, you're great. You don't need the radioactive spider again. You are also not like Rocky in your sanctification. It doesn't mean that you can like train and run the steps and become super strong and then coast on how virtuous you are. We consistently need God. Okay, even though he has solidified us, and even though he's making space for us, and we can improve, we're not, gonna, we're not hoping to arrive and be perfect in this life. We will always need to pray Psalm 32 over and over again. And that's repentance, right? That's a huge part of the Christian life, is acknowledging the places where we have transgressions and iniquity, bringing them before God, bringing them for each other, uh, and getting forgiveness, getting relief from the tension that we were talking about earlier. Uh, this is well described, I think, in verses 6 and 7. Listen to how David characterizes that relief in repentance. He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the rush of great waters shall not reach him. He says, he says to God, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble, and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. So he's not exposed to the evil of the world. He's not exposed to his guilt and shame anymore. God is protecting him from that. Think of Noah being preserved from the flood. God is protecting you, preserving you for a better use in the future. God has purpose for you. Um, that's, that's the whole point of repentance is to live out those purposes. Getting a state of blessedness with God is not about you coasting on your own steam. It's about God saving you and God making you whole again day by day. We don't arrive in this life. David knows this. Jesus knows this. Uh, so they give us this last part of the psalm to encourage us to put it into practice. Okay, he says really simply here in verse 6, Therefore, says, so I had this tension and I confessed and God forgave me. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at the time when you may be found. For a Christian with Jesus as his advocate before God, God can be found at all times. God is available to you always. And this has been true since the beginning. Even since Adam and Eve sinned, God is still available to humans for repentance. He speaks through the prophets. He raises up Moses. He makes the Levitical law. He speaks through the judges and then the prophets again. He establishes kings in Israel. He sends Jesus to live and die and to be our mediator. So God has always had a relationship with people and he's wanting to do that. Read what he says in Ezekiel 33, 10 and 11, just as an example of this. This is before Jesus comes on the scene. It reads, and you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, this is, God is telling Ezekiel to prophesy this stuff. 
Thus you have said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How can we live? Does this sound familiar to what David is saying in the psalm? How can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from evil, uh, turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God is consistently through history, through your life, and through the lives of people who will come after us, reaching out. There's a great quote um, that I heard. John Piper said it. I think he was quoting somebody else. I don't know who to give credit for this for, but (laughs) this is the easy way to frame it up. God, with one hand, is holding back wrath and justice for our sin with one hand, and with the other, he is extending grace and mercy. Okay? And that's, that's what David is trying to show us here. We've got some space to accept that, even, even here and now. So in verse 8 and 9, he gives us some encouragement. He gives us some tough love. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Okay, this is, this is a little bit harsh, but this is what we need to hear. Don't be stubborn and proud. Seek God where he may be found and lean on him to make you more like him. Lean on him for forgiveness, for that security in your identity, for peace, for reassurance. And in repentance, let him heal your relationship with him. Let him give you blessedness and he'll heal your relationship with himself and with others. So this psalm is a reassurance of our justification. It's a template for our sanctification. And we look forward to the day when Christ will make us new and we'll be whole again. The end of the honeymoon story, by the way, is that I, did, I called the owner and he did not say, well, you owe me 500 bucks and you, you know, I'll never speak to you again or whatever. He, he said, well, the water here was old and I'll, I'll pay for a new one. It kind of needed to be replaced anyway. He, he forgave me, right? He forgave the iniquity of my sin. And that was a huge relief, right? So because God has done that for us, we need to be free and generous in doing that with one another. Um, and that's what God does too. He takes our evil, he takes our rebellion, he takes our hatred and silliness, and he neutralizes it in Christ, and he offers us good in exchange. So take hold of that today. Uh, you're not Spider-Man, you're not Rocky, you're justified, and you're sanctified. And be careful, because if you don't accept this, David, <laughs> David is really clear, he says, don't be like a mule, don't be stubborn. If you don't accept this, If you refuse to lean on God to help you when you're falling short, if you refuse to acknowledge your own transgression, your own pride, and your own weakness, then be careful because God is holding back his wrath and his justice with one hand, and he is extending mercy and grace to you with the other. But a day is coming when both of those will be removed. And verse 6 will be true for the justified. Verse 6 the rush of great waters will not reach him. You are a hiding place. You preserve us and you'll surround us with deliverance. But the sorrows of the wicked will overcome them. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. So we can be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for this psalm. Thank you for giving us prayers to pray back to you when we are too weak or too confused to do so. 
God, we pray that you would stir our hearts to return to you in repentance, uh, that you would be patient with us, that you would sanctify us, um, and that you would guide us and lead us uh, by your loving Holy Spirit. And we thank you uh, for the opportunity to be blessed. And we thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf. We pray that you would help us to take hold of that. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.